Hello and welcome to And Let's Be Heard for Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. I'm Mike Kachopoli. All right. All right. Uh, I know I'm on a few hours earlier than usual. Most people expect me on at 11 p.m. Pacific time. But I'm on at 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, a little bit earlier tonight, because we're going to have a, a special guest coming up here shortly. Um, it's actually it's a it's a special it's a special day for a couple of reasons. First reason is it's uh, it's my birthday, so today is my birthday, July 12th. And uh, yes, I'm working on my birthday. Believe it or not, I'm working on my birthday. Why not? Why not? It's just another day, right? If you think about it, it's just your birthday is just another another day. That's all. It's not a it's not a big deal, I don't think. I think there are certain, you know, uh ages that you hit where it's a, a your birthday's uh your birthday's a big deal. You know, I would say that eighteen is a biggie. I would say that uh, twenty is big. Well eighteen's big because at eighteen you can vote, right? Uh, at 20, you're no longer a teenager. Okay. At 21, you can, you can drink in the United States. So these are big dates, I think. Then, of course, when you hit 30 and you hit 40 and you hit 50, those, those landmark numbers, those even numbers are, are a big deal. But my birthday today, I'm, I'm 52 today. I just turned 52 today. So special day. It's my birthday. And my special guest just came into the room. Let me introduce him. Um, Ian, Ian Miller. Let's see. Let's invite Ian to speak, and then we'll be able people come into the room. Uh, but Ian Miller is the author of "Illusion of Control: COVID nineteen and the Collapse of Expertise." Ian also wrote the book "Unmasked," and about a year and a half ago, I had Ian on my show. My previous show before I came on call in to talk about his uh, first unmasked, and now his new book is Illusion of Control, which just like Unmasked, you can find on Amazon. And Ian, if you unmute your mic, you'll be able to talk. The bottom, there you go. Hey, Ian, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Good. Long, long time no speak. I think you were on. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we had you on uh, talking about your first book, Unmasked, which was all about the mask mandates and how useless and ineffective they were. And now your new book is Illusion of Control, COVID-19 and the Collapse of uh, Expertise. Um, I think when I had you on about a year and a half ago, I had mentioned you might need to write a, a sequel to Unmasked. Is this the sequel to Unmasked? Can I call it? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, That kind of was my goal, and I think you were right, was to just try and kind of cover the second half of the pandemic um, and, uh, you know, and show how the policies changed over time and and got worse in some cases. Uh, You know, the the, the first book, I even though it came out in January of 2022, uh, I finished writing it in the summer of 2021. So, you know, there was a whole you know year plus of the the Omicron panic, the Omicron variant, vaccine passports and mandates and all the other stuff that I wanted to cover and um, kind of you know expand the focus from just showing how masks didn't work to show how more more of a comprehensive failure, how so many things didn't work, um, 
and, and so many policies the experts demanded that we do didn't work. Um, and that was kind of the goal is to, to essentially make a sequel to Unmasked. When you say illusion of control, what, what do you what do you mean when you say illusion of control? That's a good question. I think that for me, what it was uh, is that, you know, there were so many experts who believed that if we listened to their advice, we could stop COVID permanently. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest failures of the pandemic. If you go back and look at, at so many uh, you know, assertions and statements and claims, which is you know what I do and many others have done. Uh, there was this kind of mentality shift that happened after the initial couple of weeks where it was like, well, we can, you know, quote unquote, flatten the curve for a certain amount of time to give our hospitals time to prepare to this kind of half-baked zero COVID-ish type thing where, well, we can we can stop COVID forever if we all just wear masks and get everybody vaccinated. Um, and I think that there was never any chance of that happening over the long term. Um, and it was a complete farce to believe that it ever could be possible for a virus that was kind of bound to become endemic by mid-2021. And, you know, I think it, it showed how they really had this this mindset that was an illusion of control. They really thought that they could control it, something that they had no chance of controlling. Um, and unfortunately, you know, so many politicians listened to the experts instead of kind of accepting that this was something out of that we couldn't really contain and having that we had to just move on with life and as much as possible and you know, limit harms where we could. Now, when you look at, you know, I guess we talk about, I talk about Tony Fauci all the time and so do you a lot on your, in your tweets and in your books. Now, when you're talking about someone like Tony Fauci, what is your, what is your personal gut feeling about someone like Fauci? Cause there are some people who say, well, he he was trying his best. He was wrong too often, but he was his heart was in the right place. Then there are people like me, and to some extent, and we'll get into it in a bit, RFK Jr., who say he he committed crimes and knew he was committing crimes, and he never never got to a point where he said, you know what, this stuff isn't working. I've tried it. We've tried this. It's not working. We need to go in a different direction. Maybe we need to start having some other voices come in, like Scott Atlas, like Jay Bhattacharya. And said, we now know from, look, all the stuff that's happened since I last spoke to you in your last book, the Twitter files, right? That happened over the last year and a half. We now know it wasn't just a guy who was trying his best, who just made some mistakes and then course corrected. He never even attempted to course correct. And we know now from the Twitter files and emails and such that he had those voices like Jay Bhattacharya, Marty McCary, and and Peter McCullough silenced. He had them silenced. So my point of view is that it was more nefarious. Um, What Fauci was doing was more nefarious, not just a good doctor who made some mistakes. What's what's your feeling on it? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think that there are definitely things that he did that were purposefully bad, you know, from our perspective. Um, I don't think that he's a... Uh, a particularly likable person that deserves a lot of respect. Unfortunately, I think he is, but my, my perspective is that he is in some ways a consummate politician where he's out to protect himself. He's out to protect his, uh, his, his profession and his coworkers and colleagues. And, you know, I think that a lot of the behavior that we see kind of comes from that. He has also, also, and many people that even like him will admit that he has a gigantic ego, which is another politician problem. Um, and I, you know, so I think that there's there's a lot of different 
ways to view it. Um, I, I don't begrudge anybody who says that they believe he was nefarious and acting nefariously. I think that there's, you know, he's given us unfortunately more than enough reason to believe that. I think, you know, having had the the privilege and opportunity to speak to some people that were, you know, much higher up than me on the food chain in terms of, uh, you know, COVID policy and discussions that have some interact have had some interactions with him. Uh, you know, they they kind of told me that he's just not very smart, and, and a lot of the people that were in those those rooms, the COVID task force. They were not very smart. Uh, they were kind of they're in their positions by ambition and by aggression and, uh, you know, being good at politics, not necessarily through, you know, being the best at whatever they were doing. Um, and I think he, you know, kind of panicked early on, especially once it became clear to him that it was likely NIH funding that kind of helped the Wuhan lab to work on, uh, you know, the lab leak and things like that, gain of function research possibilities there. And, uh, I think he also just kind of realized also very quickly that he was becoming extremely popular, uh, especially on the left, because he was set up as the kind of anti-Trump that yeah, he was the credible one that you could listen to and take advice from. And, and it was very science based and evidence based uh, when that was definitely not the case. So it, it's I think it's probably some kind of a mixture, if that makes sense. Uh, it does make sense. Yes, it does. But. I think what what bothers me the most, and you know, there are people who have said, "Well, we just need an apology from these people." Into apologize, said they did it the wrong way, you know, and we'll learn from our mistakes and pass those on to whatever may come in the future. But my feeling is, unless, and I've said this so many times on this show and on Twitter to some extent, until there's some kind of a of a punishment handed down, until the future generations see that these people who did these things that destroyed society in so many ways. You can, and we talk about destroying society. I talk about, you know, I talk about the, the fabric of society, the moral of society, the the morale, the, uh, the, the economy, so many different ways. Until until there's some kind of a punishment element, there's no deterrent, right, to this mm -hmm. kind of thing happening in the future. And I, I compare it. Some people think it's extreme. I don't care. I don't think it is to to the to the Nazi prison guards who were 85 90 years old and we found them living in Sweden somewhere you know, 30 40 years later and we still went after them we still put jail for the remainder of their lives we didn't say well it's a long time ago they were forced to do these things they didn't know any better because there had to be a record of punishment so to deter future generations from committing the same atrocities do you think that there needs to be and RFK Jr., I think, just addressed this a couple of days ago when he was asked if he would prosecute Fauci. And he said, well, my attorney general would look into it. And if he found crimes were committed, I would be all for prosecuting him. Do you think that is an important element to making sure that we don't do that? These people don't do these things again or future uh, experts don't do the same things again. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I do think they need to be held accountable. Um, I don't know in what form that takes that takes place. Um, you know, I don't think that's ever going to happen, unfortunately. Um, I think that there's, you know, th these people are just so utterly protected by, you know, the media and by the institutions and, and kind of just like the, the hive mind groupthink mindset of, of Washington, D.C. politics that, you know, they're, they're, they've been given a golden parachute soft landing regardless. I mean, Fauci has just got his new job at Georgetown, which I'm sure he's going to be paid unbelievably well to do. And, uh, you know, he's, it's going to be some cushy professorship where he'll be 
uh, you know, worshipped by students there. Um, and, you know, Deborah Brooks was given another job. It, it, it's not hard to – I just don't think that they're going to be able to ever really hold them accountable. I think that it is necessary because what they did and what they what they allowed to happen or, or recommended happen was a complete disaster. It's one of the greatest peacetime disasters in world history and, and just a complete inexcusable mistake uh, in so many ways. And it's cost millions of people untold amount of damage and harm. Um, and not only have they not apologized, but they don't even think that they need to apologize. And I think that's that's even more frustrating for so many of us. Um, you know, I, I agree. I think that we I would love to see them held accountable, I, but I don't know what form that would take them in. You know, I just, Anthony Fauci, I can't see a world in which he spends a single day in a criminal trial for, for anything that he did, uh, regardless of whether or not it's justified or not. And we see that all the time with, you know, we're seeing it right now play out with, uh, with the, you know, the Hunter Biden's Biden investigations and, and the deal that he just got where, you know, nobody else would be handed that kind of a deal, but he has the right last name. And then we have a whistleblower coming forward and saying, oh, they were interfering with our investigation. You know, that that's the kind of thing that you almost have to expect at this point with Washington politics. And, and Fauci and uh, and other people like him have the same level of protection that similar uh, the Biden family would or, or something like that. So, yeah, I just I can't see it uh, ever getting there, unfortunately. But, I, I'm, you know, they, they definitely should be some accountability that goes forward here. It seems like a protection that someone like Donald Trump doesn't seem to have. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy. And I mean, you could go down the list. There's just so many examples of the, the double tiered system of, of how things are handled here and, and who gets preference treatment and who doesn't, but it's just another example. Do you think, and I've, I've, we've, we've discussed this on this show several times. Do you think that, there's a section of this country after all that has happened, after all the damage that these mandates did over the course of a few years uh, that maybe let's say here in California, specifically where I live here in San Francisco, that there's uh, at least a, a good section. I don't know if I want to call it half of the majority or whatever of people who do the exact same things all over again, if they were told to. And I mean, like right now, today oh yeah i i i definitely think that i think that it and and that's one of the the points with the uh with the second book as well as to continue hammering this point home because i think it there are absurd amounts of people who would still go right back to to lockdown and mask mandates and you know vaccine passports and things the second that the government told them to um i think that's unfortunately a very it's a broader cultural problem a broader systemic problem um you know that we all unfortunately are dealing with, but um, I think it, it's in large part due to the media, the media that, that those specific people follow did not ever tell them that they were wrong. They never admitted mistakes. They never acknowledged that, you know, masks didn't work um, or, you know, the vaccines didn't stop transmission until it was obvious to everybody, but you know, long past, long past when it would have been useful to bring that information up. Um, they never you know, they still kind of venerate Dr. Fauci and the CDC without admitting all the mistakes that they've made and problems they made, you know, and how they chose to cover things and how they chose to, to phrase things. I mean, I, I literally just tweeted about this earlier today about how, you know, at one point last year, and it wasn't uh, Kevin Bass, I think, found it. Uh, you know, there was a poll that like 60 percent of Democrats wanted to lock unvaccinated people in their homes. You know, that's a failure of communication from a huge swath of the media and, and entertainment industry and other forms of popular culture. Um, and unfortunately, I think if you did that poll today, 
you would still get an insane amount of people that believed that that was a, a reasonable, necessary step to take, uh, despite it being wrong at the time, uh, and also just an unjustified, you know, discriminatory policy, regardless. So I I think that it is a that's a it's a hill that we have not yet started to climb, and I don't know if we ever will. But I mean, obviously, you're in San Francisco, I'm in Southern California, and I'm sure, like me, you will see people wearing masks every single day, and in some cases, double masking. And I guess it. that, yeah, yeah, I guess that's just going to continue forever now because so many people refuse to believe that they were misled. And I'm sorry for the long answer, but just one more example is, you know, you go to somewhere like Disneyland or a theme park <laughs> where you have a lot of younger employees working in a high traffic area. The percentage of those employees that are still wearing masks is astonishing it's astonishing and it's it's depressing honestly um and it, it shows you how these people are just have just been completely misled they've never heard any evidence contradicted them they won't engage with it even if they do see it uh and it's, it's really really hard to reach those people and convince them they were wrong i was actually going to mention that i think kevin bass had tweeted something out earlier today and it was basically what you had said about a year and a half ago just a year and a half so basically when your first book came out Thirty percent, that's a third of all Democrats, believe that children should be taken away from unvaccinated parents. That's just basically January of, of 2022. Thirty percent of Democrats thought yeah. that if you had unvaccinated parents, their children should be taken away from them. I mean, this is uh, it, it's hard to believe. It's, it's really hard to believe, but that's that's a real number. That was a real poll that was taken yeah, in January, January of 2022 among Democrats who truly believe that if the parents decided not to get a an experimental medical procedure, that their 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 children should be stripped from them. Isn't this I mean, I hate to put label things on things, but I have to do this. Isn't isn't this kind of communist China stuff? I, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's hard to make the comparisons. It is. It does feel. I think he put it as a totalitarian ideology, uh, and, and obviously communist China is in a lot of ways very something something very similar. Um, yeah, I think it's not the worst comparison in the world. Unfortunately, it's kind of insane. It's just hard to believe. But um, you know, I I I don't know what has broken down in the political par- process to allow people to believe that that's an acceptable thing to do. I mean, they they're almost treating it like it's child abuse to not vaccin- to have unvaccinated parents um, when. I mean, beyond whether or not you think the vaccines were effective or not effective, especially in 2021 into 2022, uh, you know, children are at unbelievably small risk from COVID. And we've known this since basically March of 2020. I mean, since this the is beginning, not, basically, since yeah, the beginning, the start. Known, sure. Yeah, that they are at incredibly low risk, regardless of whether treatments they had or, you know, vaccines they had or whatever it would be. So I, I just don't see how that would be remotely justifiable, regardless of, of anything else, uh, you know. Just on the on the basis of that, uh, what did they think that they were parents would be doing by to protect children by getting vaccinated? Uh, on top of it being obvious by January 2022, I mean, I've written about it constantly. I wrote about it in the book, and you can go back and look at many examples from 2021. The vaccinated people were easily getting and getting uh, and spreading COVID at that point in time. So it, it's just it's an absurd thing to believe. It's so totally disconnected from reality. It's hard to believe that anybody actually believed it at any point. Um, but they did, and in large part because they they listened heard Hertzie director say, if you're vaccinated, you cannot get and spread COVID. Or you know, Fauci saying they're 100 percent effective. You know, they become dead ends for the virus, et cetera, et cetera. I just 
and they never corrected the record. And it's, it's just infuriating to believe that and, and understand it, but it's true. And I, you know, I don't know. It's hard to, I, I don't know what the ideology, how that's gotten to that point, but it is really sad and disheartening that it has. And I think it goes so much deeper than that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a way we can at some point figure out what happened to people, but uh, I guess fear is a big thing. I think we spoke about this last time we spoke. It was fear is a big part of it, obviously, and and the propaganda of of fear. And you talk about how you know Walensky said if you get this vaccine, you can't get a spread COVID, and Fauci said that, and and Rachel Maddow said that, and uh, Joe Biden uh, said that also that if you get these vaccines, you, you're not going to get COVID. And you say that the the record was never corrected, but isn't it obvious to people that they got the vaccine and they got COVID? I mean, this happened personally to the majority of people who got the vaccine, or they would know people who got the vaccine and got COVID two or three times. So you would think just from why does the, maybe you don't have an answer for this, but why does the record have to be corrected if learned experience told people that the vaccine didn't stop the spread of COVID? (laughs) Yeah, I, exactly. I, I don't, I don't know. I really, I, I don't have an answer. I wish I did. I, I think there's just something, there's a mentality, unfortunately, among people. And, and I, again, this is kind of the, the goal with the book as well is, is that trusting experts makes them superior people. I think that's my uh-huh. interpretation anyway, where if they listen to experts, if they believe what experts say, it makes them intellectually superior and smarter. Um. So, you know, it's it that's the hard part about this where you just go, I gotta believe that this is why this is what happened. Like people really like just took hold of whatever experts said because they thought it made them smarter than those those idiot, dumb, unvaccinated, unmasked, unwashed masses. You know, I live in San Francisco, I'm smart, I went to to college, I listened to Dr. Fauci, I listened to the smarter people. You know, and there's there you can see it with a lot of people like Jimmy Jimmy Kimmel, for example, and, or <laughs> other other you know political or uh, um, you know pop culture figures that would would talk down to anybody who didn't follow what the experts said to do, and it doesn't even matter if their own lived experience proved them wrong. They would say, "Well, I'm an exception, and they're still right, and I can't contradict them because they were you know they're the experts." Um, and, you know, there have been a few cracks in the in the dam, I guess, a little bit where, I, you know, I wrote a story about this for Outkick uh, a while ago. Bill Simmons, who's a big sports writer and started The Ringer, basically came out and said in a podcast, like, I don't know if I would have made the choice to get vaccinated again or get boosted again because, uh, you know, they all got they got everything wrong and we all got COVID anyway. And, you know, how, what are they were they even talking about? And, you know, when you have somebody with that kind of a platform and that and who's not a Republican, not conservative, not a you know member of an anti whatever movement saying, you know, they were wrong about this and we all got COVID anyway. And maybe there's some hope that some people will be willing to come around at some point. I, I, I hope anyway. Yet we still see a lot of older people, especially continuing to get the boosters. And I know people in their 70s and 80s who intend to get one every six months or however often they come out. It's basically, as you say. I know a lot of people, especially older people, who basically will just follow whatever the quote-unquote experts tell them. So the government tells them it's time for your new booster, and they'll schedule their new booster. We just saw Health Canada come out today 
and say that they're getting ready for a new round of boosters come the fall. And they recommend everyone get their new round of boosters in the fall and beyond. So it's hard to say we're winning this thing, Ian. I mean, (laughs) I, I would like to believe that that we've won something, that we've proved ourselves right, that we've proved all these quote-unquote experts wrong. But it, it, it seems as though there's a good section of society, and not just this country, but in many countries, that will just continue to believe what the experts have basically been saying since March of 2020, as though they didn't get anything wrong. I mean, there are, there yeah. are plenty of people out there, you know this, who don't believe the experts got anything wrong. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. Um, it, it is. I do think there's been a lot of fits and starts and there's been a lot of moments where it has felt like we've made a lot of progress. And then, as you say, you talk to people that are willing to do, you know, go get the seventh, eighth, tenth booster or whatever. Um, and it just feels hopeless. I, I, you know, I do think over time, the numbers have definitely shifted in our favor where there are more people today than ever before who are just not listening. And I think you can look at that with the, with the data on the bivalent booster, you know, with the target, they, they came out with the Omicron booster and targeted to Omicron. And we had to do that for this past winter, uh, you know, into 22 and 23, or else we're going to have a huge surge again. Um, and basically I think it's like 17 or 18% of us adults got, got the bivalent booster. I mean, that is unimaginably low. I, you know, if you had told me before that thing rolled out that it would get 17 or 18%, I would say that's one of public health's biggest failures and embarrassments uh, throughout the pandemic. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And they all just kind of swept it under the rug and ignored that we never got the surge that they were claiming was going to come if everybody didn't get the, the new booster dose. Um, you know, I think the numbers among senior citizens were higher. It was something 40-something percent. But, and I, you know, it's understandable. Those are the people that are most at risk. And a lot of people are going to think, well, I'll take every chance I have to protect myself. I get it. But... It's, it shows you, you know, the number, the fact that the number was something in like the 40s, because compared to the 90 plus percent that got right. the original vaccination series, there's a lot of trust that these people have lost in the public, a lot. And I think that, you know, well-deserved, unfortunately. And, you know, I think it's it's very easy as somebody who is not an expert, who's not a credentialed person in this field to say, uh, you know, look at what they got wrong. And, I, you know, I want to be clear. It's like, I don't expect perfection. We don't expect everybody to get every answer right. But as we've talked about earlier, the humility and admitting that they were wrong, having some accountability would have gone a long way towards making people regain some trust to me. Like if you come out and tell me we got this wrong and we'll do better next time, I'm going to have a lot more faith in you going forward than if you we all can see that you're wrong and you just ignore it anyway, if that makes sense. I'm speaking to Ian Miller, the author of Illusion of Control, COVID-19 and the Collapse of Expertise, which you can find on Amazon. I recommend it. Uh, the fact that we had things like mask mandates and we'll, we'll talk about chapter six goes into vaccine passports and all of these things and also mask mandates on planes and uh, for international travels. And the fact that we talk about winning, the fact that those things ended, isn't, isn't that, am I, am I going too far by saying that's, those are victories because they, they kind of saw that people were getting tired of that, that were, uh, understanding those things weren't necessary. They were arbitrary. They weren't working. They were hurting society. They were hurting small businesses and they had to end those things. Is that kind of a victory or am I going too far with that? Uh, no, I don't, I, th- I don't think you are. I think that is kind of a victory. I think it was, 
I think I covered this in the book a little bit, but it was definitely something that I talked about at the time. And a lot of people talked about at the time. Well, if you go back and look at like February 2020, um, you know, there, or I'm sorry, 2022, most of these policies and a lot of, especially blue states, blue cities were still continuing, continuing and, uh, you know, mass mandates and, and vaccine passports. And then all of a sudden, I think it was within like three or four days, a whole bunch of states lifted their mandates all at once. You all run by Democrats. You go, well, I mean, that's just, there's no way that's a coincidence. And I think what that said was, you know, these, these politicians have realized that these positions, these mandates are no longer justifiable or popular enough among the population to get away with it. You know, people were ready to be done with it. It's two years. We've done enough. It's time to move on. Everyone got COVID anyway, and everybody can see it. Um, I think that 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 did help really end a lot of this stuff a lot faster than I really expected. You know, being in Los Angeles in fall of 2021, you know, when they when the Omicron stuff hit and they did the vaccine passports, I I legitimately thought that it was just going to be, you know, six months, a year. You know, God knows, are we ever going to get normal life back? Um, And just it's. I think that everybody, the, the kind of victory, like you say, was everyone got this, got COVID anyway, uh, real, and the politicians realized that it was, it was unpopular to continue these policies, and, and they left them really quickly and much more quickly than I expected them to. I mean, I just, again, as one example, Gavin Newsom was uh, proudly taunted, uh, touting how he was going to be the first governor in the nation to impose school vaccine mandates for COVID, and he compared it to you know, polio or whatever other vaccines. And all of a sudden, that kind of quietly disappeared. Right. So I think those are victories. And, you know, you kind of have to take them and get them, unfortunately. And I, I know we all wish that it would have been much more comprehensive. But, uh, yeah, you know, you take your small small wins here and there and, and keep hoping for bigger ones. Do you think part of the reason why they ended these things is because they saw that people were going to begin to sue them? And I think we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen a lot of lawsuits. They don't get coverage by the legacy media, of course. But I think we have seen a lot of lawsuits, right? A class action lawsuits, lawsuits from businesses, uh, lawsuits from, from parents because of what happened to the kids in schools. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. And if I'm not wrong, even during the COVID era, most of the, of the uh, lawsuits that Newsom had to face, he lost, didn't he? Most notably being the, uh, the uh, churches, right? He lost that in the courts. Yeah, I can't remember if that was Newsom or if that was L.A. County in particular that lost. Uh, I think it was to the Grace Community Church in L.A. Uh, but, yeah, there were a lot of lawsuits and a lot of them did win. We saw the, the Supreme Court with Biden's uh, private company vaccine mandate shot that down. And, um, you know, we've seen we saw in April of 2022. And it's kind of again, it's been kind of forgotten that the CDC lost that lawsuit uh, about the imposing the, the airplane airplane mask mandates. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I do think that there was probably some concern about that. And, and just to go back to that for a second, remember how they were going to appeal and it was an emergency that they have the authority to continue enforcing the airplane vaccine man- or uh, mask Yeah, whatever happened to the appeal? Right. Whatever happened to that? It's just kind of quietly disappeared, hasn't it? It um, has. You know, maybe it'll just rear – maybe – who knows? Maybe it's still going and it'll rear its head. But if it was such an emergency to keep it going, you'd think that uh, you know, 14 months later, 15 months later – uh, we have an answer to uh, to getting that back in place, but again, it's it, it showed. I think when they lost these things and the policies ended and people went back to normal and nothing happened, um, it it just was another kind of chink in the armor, saying like, you know, we're not 
people aren't listening to this anymore. It's doesn't, it's not working. We know it's not working. We can see it failing. Um, and I think that that's my hope anyway, is that, you know, as we get further and further away, there will be more people that kind of come to that realization. In chapter six, I didn't want to go into the, the vaccine, uh, passport. You talk about, uh, Bill de Blasio, right? Uh, he took the interventions a step further, deciding in the summer of 2021 to mandate vaccine passports for nearly all indoor activities in the city. That's not hyperbole or an exaggeration. Here's the initial list of businesses required to ask customers to show proof of vaccination. There were restaurants, bakeries, coffee shops, catering halls, cafeterias, event spaces, banquet rooms, bars, nightclubs, dining spaces, and grocery stores. Fast food restaurants, movie and performing arts theaters, live music and concert venues, museums, exhibition halls and galleries, aquariums and zoos, sports arenas and stadiums, convention centers, bowling alleys, pool halls, game centers, arcades, gyms, fitness centers, workout classes, pools, dance studios, casinos, adult entertainment venues. So you talk about this with Bill de Blasio in New York City, but this is also what happened here in, in, in California, in San Francisco, I think maybe a lesser degree, you can correct me, in San Diego, but definitely here in San Francisco, of course, Los Angeles with Barbara Farrar. Um, and I remember here in San Francisco, I think it was the summer of, of, of 2020, gyms opened up again, and then they were only outdoors, and then they closed them again, and then they made them indoors with masks, and then they went to outdoor. I mean, this was ridiculous, Ian. You remember this. Oh, yeah. Um, it, was, it was back and forth. I remember my gym here, which has a space. Very few gyms have space to put equipment outdoors, but one gym d- in the Trans Bay area d- did, uh, Fitness SF, and they would put these, – these poor kids would have to move the equipment outdoors. Then they'd move the equipment back indoors. Then they'd move the equipment back outdoors. Then they'd move the equipment back indoors. Then you had to wear masks. Then, of course – came the vaccine passports where you had to have a vaccine passport to work out there. So the way these politicians made these businesses go through these constant changes and hoops in order to stay open. And of course, in the process, they lost some business. They lost my business and they lost business of a lot of people I know who didn't want to deal with this stuff. What, (laughs) once again, this is, this is probably a tough question to answer, but what do you believe and I know you said a little bit about this. You said people said they can believe the experts. They felt the they felt elite to other people. They said, "Oh, we're we're smart enough to listen to the experts. You idiots do your own research. You don't know what you're talking about." You know, but what what do you think was the the driving force of of people allowing themselves to be manipulated by these politicians? And as we know, Ian, it, it wasn't. It wasn't nationwide. This wasn't happening in Georgia. This wasn't happening in Florida. This was happening in Texas. I traveled extensively through the COVID years. It wasn't happening in Omaha, Nebraska. It wasn't happening in uh, Arizona. But in places like California, New York, New York City, L.A., San Francisco, it's as though no one had any (laughs) uh, backbone to say, you know what, we're not this is not legal constitutionally you can't make us do this and they just and they just went along with it outside of the idea of the liberal elites in the coast saying well we're superior because we believe the experts and we believe the smart people which makes us smarter than you do you think there's there's something else in the in the left in the dna if you will 
of the left that that made them do these kinds of ridiculous things. And when we look back on it now, it's even more ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it, 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 that list is pretty incredible, isn't it? Just think, <laughs> thinking about that for a minute. It's crazy um, to read it now. It's like insanity. You know, yeah, it yeah, exactly. And it, it did spread widely, and unfortunately, but it was also, like you say, it wasn't everywhere. And I think that that did help kind of end the policies quicker, too, is, you know, people realizing that Florida was completely open with things completely normal and everybody, everything was fine. Um, but, I, you know, I think the mentality issue is, is that I think a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people on the left uh, like being told what to do. Uh, I think they, they kind of enjoy outsourcing their, their opinions to other people. Um, I think that there was a belief that they were what they were doing the right thing, that they were being good people. And that's a very powerful instinct is to tell people you're being a good person because you did the right thing. You got vaccinated, you wore masks and, uh, and got boosted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I, to be, to be quite honest, I did not really think that people would tolerate it. And that was another kind of wake up call was to see how, not only tolerated, but encouraged and supported vaccine mandates and passports were among so many on the left. Um, you know, I think there's a, fortunately, there's a lot of anger on the left as well, anger towards people who disagree with them. Um, and I think it provided another opportunity for them to kind of separate themselves from the unclean masses that uh, that they look down on. Um, I, you know, I, I really don't know exactly why so many people were so gung ho about it. Um, you know, I could, you could view it if you wanted to be charitable as some kind of grim necessity, but there were so many who seemed to just kind of revel in it and, and take joy and pride in it. Um, and I think that that's a, a concerning mindset that uh, I don't really, I don't really understand. I don't really fully get it, but uh, you know, if you had told me, if you, I think if you told a lot of people that considered themselves Democrats 50 or 60 years ago, that, they would be in favor of some of the biggest restrictions on civil liberty in, you know, in, since uh, the civil rights era, uh, the Democrats would be cheering that on and encouraging it, supporting it, that they would not have believed you. But and, and again, you can go back and look at all the hypocrisy that ha that come out of it, where uh, people will say, you know, uh, health, personal health decisions should be left up to the individual government should be involved. And then they have the government telling you, well, you can't go to a list of 75 businesses unless you do what we tell you with your personal health decision. I mean, it's just, it's the height of absurdity, but uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't really understand it. I don't get it. Uh, I don't ever will, unfortunately. Chapter seven in the book, you, you dedicate this one to Fauci himself. And uh, there's one paragraph I just want to read very quickly. His past positions were so incoherent and eventually unpopular that even he himself seemed confused about his previous recommendations. In 2022, he firmly claimed that he never said the country should be locked down. During an interview with The Hill, Fauci proclaimed, first of all, I didn't recommend locking anything down, except, of course, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> On the record in 2020, Vice headlined the story from April 3 of 2020. Dr. Fauci says we need a nationwide lockdown and we need it now. This kind of revisionist history makes me go crazy because it's not like revisionist history from 50 years ago, right? Or a hundred years ago, you really got to research what happened. <laughs> this is like, yeah. this is a guy in, in March, April, May of 2020 saying one thing, then a couple of years later saying, I never said it, Ian, as though we don't have the record that you just wrote about in your book. 
And there are a million of these records. Just Google it. Anyone can Google Fauci lockdowns. And there are a million stories of him calling for lockdowns, saying they should be even stricter. So what that's why when I talk about someone like Fauci, it's not like this doctor who just was overwhelmed and, and did things the wrong way. It's it's this constant. He, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he did. And now he's trying to very quickly rewrite history. We've seen this with Randy Weingarten, right? Didn't she just say she wanted to open schools? I mean, yeah. the absurdity, these people to me, and I've talked about this on this show, it's, it's almost as though they're like shoving it in our faces saying, you can't do anything about it. We can lie as much as we want blatantly. It doesn't matter if you have evidence of our lies on record. Too bad. You can't do anything to us. This makes me want to do things to them. See what I'm saying? It drives mm-hmm. me insane. It makes me yeah. want to punish them. Yeah, I, I know. It is It is infuriating, and I, I completely agree. It's When you go back and look at these statements, it just it beggars belief that uh, you know, that they would make these kinds of remarks when we have a, a written record of everything instantly the second they say it. Uh, I mean, there's just so many, so many examples. It's hard to even remember individual ones. That was a great one. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it, it is, it is really, yeah. I mean, like I said, it, it's pretty easy to, to make the claim that there is some kind of, you know, nefarious mindset going on with Fauci because it's just so ridiculous and so obvious that of course he said that things should be locked down. He was one of the voices recommending that things be locked down. I think what he gets away with or what he what he believes he can get away with saying is something like, well, you know, I just make recommendations. I don't tell people what to do or what businesses should do. But that's true. And I think that it's it's a semantics argument that isn't accurate. And if you go back and look how many times where, you know, sports leagues would be asking him, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? As if he he held the keys to, to every answer. He gives the keys to the kingdom. Um, and you know, I think that there's a lot of, there were a lot of corporations and and CEOs that looked at him and said, uh, you know, here's what we, what should we do? Here's what we'll figure out. What do we, what do you think? And he would give his answers. Well, yeah. Okay. Technically you're not make you're not the CEO of, uh, whatever insert corporation here, but when they're coming to you for advice and you give them your advice, you, you reasonably expect them to follow it. And it's it's kind of this again. It's more more revisionist history from him and, and many others like him to say, oh well, I you know I wasn't telling everybody to lock down, well, or I wasn't forcibly closing down school buildings. Well, no, you weren't, but your advice led to schools being closed because you said schools should be closed, and and it's it's absurd to say otherwise. And, and yeah, I mean it's. It is really frustrating. That's kind of why we say it's not just apology, it's accountability, because otherwise there's no incentive for, for Fauci's replacement or Walensky's replacement to not behave exactly the same way. They've seen their predecessors get away with it. Why wouldn't they? And I think we've even heard them say things such as we never said the vaccines would stop the spread, right? I mean, they're saying that now also. Yeah. That we never said the vaccines would certainly stop the spread when we have them on record from 2021. Saying right. the vaccines, I mean, people like Rachel Maddow, Walensky, you know, you know, I'm not crazy. You can you can get me on this is they said the fact you take the vaccine and the virus stops with you. They said it yeah. all the time. And now they're saying, oh, no, we didn't say that. It's 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 that that makes that makes it quite obvious to me that they are not legitimate players in this whole thing, that they, they've done nefarious things. They did it on purpose. They're never going to admit they were wrong and that 
to lie about it. Just the fact that they have to lie about it and do revisionist history proves they know they're wrong, right? Because they were right. They can say, of course we said those things. Look at how they worked, right? Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It is It is true that the, the fact that they have to kind of change their story and, and you know, lie about what they were actually said when we can all see it, um, you know, I think that that is, a, it is an, a tacit admission of guilt and wrongdoing. We're never going to get a full admission of guilt and wrongdoing because there's no reason for them to, to do so. You know, for the, among their social circle and the people that they care about uh, in the government or in other institutions, uh, not only is there no, Oh, you know, you guys should admit you were wrong. It's, it's rewarding and it's honoring and it's, it's just showering them with praise for the work that they did. And, and that's, it's again, it's, I keep saying disheartening, but it's very disheartening because it, it just shows how, uh, and, and I don't even think it's just a COVID-only problem, but especially in COVID, the how how just partisan this whole thing is, where people are not willing to accept that somebody that agrees with their political beliefs could have been wrong about this, um, and especially because that kind of would make somebody like Donald Trump right or Ron DeSantis right, and that's that's just unacceptable. Um, as opposed to admitting the truth, it's it's easier for them to kind of continue lying and maintaining this, this proven fiction than it is to uh, give credit to somebody that doesn't share their ideology. Uh, you know, I will say that there are a lot of people on the p- kind of political left, or at least used to be, that I've come to know through through Twitter and COVID Twitter who have who haven't who rejected that and said, you know, I'm not, I, I, they, they saw through it all as it was happening and didn't just blindly follow whatever their, you know, ideological peers believed. And they've kind of come out the other side questioning a lot of this stuff and, and, how we got here uh, and wanting accountability as well. And, you know, I think it's, uh, they get a lot of vicious acts too, just as I do. And I'm sure you do for speaking out that uh, because people are, can't accept that their belief system was proven wrong over time, uh, but they've, they've stayed strong with it. So, which is, which is good to see. It's something anyway. Uh, let's go to uh, Daniel. I think he probably has a, a, a question for you. Hey, hey, Daniel, you're on with the, uh... Ian Miller, author of Illusion of Control. Hey, Mike and Ian. Um, nice to make your acquaintance via the airways, Ian. I've been a longtime reader of your um, tweets, and they have always been highly informative. Um, and I got a suggestion for a third book title for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the Control of Illusion. Because it seems to me... <laughs> Because it seems to me that the first title, the uh, illusion of control, is far too generous with respect to what actually happened. Um, I don't think. I mean, I, I'm an MD, PhD. I work at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, yeah, I've been surrounded by a lot of scientists that were total dumbasses. You know, bought the whole <laughs> lockdown thing, the mask. But every physician that I know knew from the beginning that masks don't work. That lockdown was only at most going to delay and postpone uh, suffering. Um, and deepen it. And they also know that there was no that an mRNA vaccine vaccination is going was going to cause a sterilizing immunity and therefore could not prevent transmission. I didn't I hadn't talked to a single physician that didn't understand that from the very beginning. But I talked to many, many, many physicians that would not say that to their patients, that would not discuss that in the hospital. Um, So this this wasn't an illusion of control. It, it was for a, a a broad and very broad and ignorant part of our population. It was, but not for the so-called experts. Um, this was about a control illusion. This was about getting us to be fearful for 
many, many different um, goals that, that, that they had, whether they were political, whether they were financial. Um, there, was so, there, was so, there was such a great conspiracy of interest that allowed this to happen, along with, you know, things that we have now that uh, the Internet 20 years ago. Um, when the internet was in its, its infancy, uh, this couldn't have happened. We would yeah. not have had a pandemic. So, I mean, there's this conspiracy of interest and this confluence of, of new tools. Um, and there is this new development of a media that is no longer a bulwark against government and abuses through government, but is instead a mercenary branch of government. And this, so, so therefore, control of illusion. We have a media that's pre- presenting a depiction of reality that just is not true, not, not even close to true. And, and at the same time, they are cens- censoring anyone that wants to inject any truth into, into the discussion. And the censorship was just phenomenal. Um, you would want, we all had hopes that the internet was going to bring a democracy of ideas and it did exactly the opposite in every, in every respect that matters. It did exactly the opposite. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, so, so having, ha- having said all that, um, I, I would like to ask you a, 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 for, for your comments on that, as well as just ask you one question, because th- there's, there's so many details that we've hashed out over and over and over again over the last three years. But, but, one thing that I keep coming back to that's very personal, um, and let me, let me just say one background thing. My father died because of this, because of the lockdown. And I, I can't, you, you say that you think people will never be held accountable. I, I simply cannot allow myself to believe that. So I just want to interject that one thing and then ask you um, something personal. Um, how do you feel and think about human beings now? I know I have changed dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear that, and, and that it is it is heartbreaking. And I, you know, I know people who felt similarly, and I, it's totally understandable to want accountability after that. Um, you know, as far as how I feel about human beings, I my my views have definitely changed as well. Uh, I, I, you know, I really, and especially I would say Americans in particular. You know, I never thought that people would put up with these kinds of, of mandates and policies in, at this point uh, for that long, and, and they did, and they were happy to do it. Um, I think it has shown that there, uh, you know, and this is probably a something that would have answered Mike your question a little bit ago about the uh, how, why people put up with vaccine mm-hmm. mandates and passports in New York for so long. Uh, fear is a very powerful messaging tactic, um, and it has been forever, right? Throughout history, we know that, and and fear really they really played up fear. They got everybody afraid of of covid of dying and you know there's there's tons of examples of you can go back of exaggerated risks cdc did it to, with kids where they were they posted these these horrifically poor studies that were uh widely shared in the media and through the other kind of twitter covid expert community uh, saying that uh, exaggerating the risks of covid to children substantially um never either would quietly correct it or never correct it and you know i think that's that's partially I, 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 it's not surprising that fear is that powerful, but you would think, like you said, in the era of, of the internet and information being widely available that you and I and everybody else had access to that were, that was, you know, pushing back against this stuff, 
that people would have been a little bit more willing to look at the numbers themselves and see what it said, and they weren't. Um, I think it, sh it shows that humanity is a lot less has progressed a lot less from the past than we think we have, if that makes sense. Um, I think we like to think of ourselves as being smarter and better than, than the people that came before us. And, you know, in some ways we probably are, but in other ways, uh, you know, a lot of those kind of things are still there where people are, are very, they're very scared and uh, very fearful and not willing to take, uh, they're very bad at, at understanding risk and evaluating it properly uh, and are very easy, easily manipulated as well. Uh, so it's just something that I kind of thought that we would be better at and turns out we're not. Yeah. I think that you probably in retrospect could probably expect that of, of human beings because um, as we developed into societies and uh, people's uh, uh, professions, people's jobs uh, became far more specialized, then there's going to be a huge swath of people that may understand um, how to, uh, um, how to get venture capital money, but understand not a, a darn thing about uh, uh, the immune system. And, and so you're going, rather than 10,000 years ago where everyone understood how to hunt and gather, everyone understood basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I don't know how you fix, unfortunately. It's, it's just a society-wide problem and, uh, you know, far from, Obviously, the children that are growing up during this time period, you know, I, I had kind of hoping if there's a, a bright spot that young people that were kind of put through the ringer of, of lockdowns and school closures and mandates and whatever that had a lot of their normal lives destroyed for, for years throughout their formative years of life, uh, that they would kind of view this as a, you know, this is never going to happen again and we can never let this happen again. This was this great intrusion. Um I don't know if that's the case. I, you know, I hope it is, but I hope if there is one positive takeaway, I hope that this younger generation, you know, is a lot more skeptical about these kinds of, of authority figures and what they're saying because they 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 should be after what they did to. Did well, everybody. it probably it probably depends on who their parents are, right? If you're Jennifer yeah. Say and Daniel Kotzen's kids, yes, you know, because <laughs> your parents are telling you with with yeah. you know how awful this was. But I'm sure if you're the, the child of a lot of liberal parents on the coast with New York or California, they're basically told their kids all their time that unfortunately this has to happen, but it's important and we have to do with it, right? We have to do yeah. it. So yeah. it probably depends on who the parents are. That's a good point. And what, what, they, what their views are about the whole thing. So uh, it's probably a mixed bag, I would say, but I, I certainly believe that most of the kids in the middle of this country um, would grow up thinking you know we we don't we don't want this to happen to our kids hopefully hopefully that's the case once again living here in san francisco and you live in southern california and daniel's in san francisco and most of people i know in new york we live kind of in this vacuum where we don't realize that 80 percent of the country didn't go through all of this right like like even yeah, in florida well, not to was, the same extent that we did here right sure. like even in florida there might have been a couple of months at the beginning right in in Nebraska, there was a you know maybe the the summer, the spring, the summer of 2020. But then it ended. They didn't keep it going for two plus years. So it's you know I think once again we have a skewed view on the coast of how this is perceived. And I think the majority of the people in this country, certainly the the libertarians, the center right people, um, I, I think 
would would fight against this kind of a thing happening again. That's that's my hope and dream, anyway. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, you know, I think obviously, we, I think one of the best examples of of how a lot of people viewed viewed the COVID restrictions and our so it is what happened with the DeSantis election in Florida, his mm-hmm. reelection, mm-hmm. uh, where he just ran away with it by far, far exceeded what people expected before that election, um, exceeded what I thought would even happen before that election. And he was kind of the poster child for the anti-COVID lockdown, anti-mandate uh, viewpoint. And not only did he win, he won by 20 points. He won by more than Gavin Newsom did in California. Right. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of that is that people that lived there were thrilled that their state stayed open. They kept their jobs. They kept their businesses open. Their kids were in school. They were able to live normal lives. And part of it was that a lot of people moved from California right. or moved right. from other lockdown states and, and to get out of that uh, thing. So we saw kind of a realignment of people where Texas and Florida kind of went nuts with, uh, with new residents. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there would be more pushback, but you know, then again, a lot of those people may have been pushing back at the time and it didn't really matter because the kind of centers of power are Los Angeles, New York, Washington, DC, uh, Chicago and San Francisco. That's right? a good and, point. And, That's a good and, point. And, yeah. So a lot of the kind of bureaucratic power comes from those areas and they were all very much in favor of it. So. Well, you mentioned DeSantis. So uh, Daniel, do you have anything else you want to ask uh, Ian? Oh, Daniel. Okay. Um, you had brought, you brought DeSantis. So, I'm going to have to bring up Donald Trump. We're in an election cycle now. We're in a, we're in a primary election cycle, and we have our two front runners of Trump and DeSantis. I have put a lot of blame on, on, on Donald Trump for getting the ball rolling with Fauci, specifically putting Fauci front and center and letting him dictate COVID policy. And of course, Operation Warp Speed with the horrible vaccines. Do you, do you agree with me that Donald Trump should take a, a good share of the responsibility for this mess? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, it's hard to say that, I don't know, I, I'm, I don't want to say he should take a lot of responsibility because that might be a little bit harsh. You know, to be fair to him, uh, I think he probably rightly realized, thought to himself, well, well, you know, look, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what to do. Um, I should listen to the people that, in theory, would know what to do. And you know, in some cases, these were his own appointees, like Jerome Adams and, and Robert Redfield. The problem is, unfortunately, those appointees were not very good. Uh, I think Redfield has been a little bit better over time, but that's the CDC director who said that masks were more protective than, than vaccines. Exactly. When, yes, you know, he did. Right. So I think that you can put a lot of blame on him for making poor decisions, making poor uh, with his appointments. And I think, uh, but it was it was reasonable to to go ask for a separate second opinions. I think his instincts probably would have been right to say we shouldn't, we shouldn't lock down. It isn't going to, you know, it's not the right move. Um, but he was probably worried about the political reaction he would get and the media media's reaction. And to me, that is another thing you can, you can kind of point to as a failing of his, where he says he doesn't care what people think, or kind of implies that, or doesn't that the media shouldn't be listened to. But his kind of behavior suggests that he was scared of what the media would say if he didn't listen to Fauci and didn't lock down. Um, you can give him credit on the other hand for, for bringing in Scott Atlas to kind of balance the, the, that, the messaging, but it was too late. It was, it was too August. little too late. It was yeah, too, it was, too late. Right. Right. August, I, I, I went to, yeah, I, I went to a, uh, a little conference with uh, Atlas about a year ago and he said that 
he was brought in in August. So, you know, by August of 2020, most of this policy was set in stone in people's minds um, and damage had been done. And uh, he was brought in. So he was brought in six, seven months too late. And he only lasted a couple of months because it was basically, I think he, I don't know if he called him the three musketeers or if I called him the three musketeers, maybe it's me, but it was Fauci, Redfield, um, and, uh, and Burks who were basically given most of the control and, and totally, uh, you know, basically just overpowered his beliefs. I mean, and, you know, and Atlas said he came in with all the stuff that you've presented in your books and all these charts and, and graphs and evidence, and they didn't want to see it. They yeah, basically exactly. said, no, this is the narrative we want. And that's that. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, and it's, it's that they didn't even bother bringing, uh, bringing kind of data and evidence to the table. It was like, he would say, oh, I brought these studies showing that this doesn't work or that doesn't work. And they wouldn't, they just didn't care, wouldn't listen and had no interest in bringing anything to the table themselves. You know, I think that's a, a good indicator of what kind of level of intellectual honesty and intellect we're dealing with with these people, which is, is not much. And that is, again, this is, this is definitely a, a fault you can, you can put on Donald Trump that he listened to them for far too long. Um, and and you had brought that. up that whole idea of, of Donald Trump saying, I don't care what people think. I do what I want. I don't care about the media. I don't care about that, this, that, and the other thing. But when asked why he really didn't get rid of Fauci, it was basically because it would cause bad press. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. That doesn't that doesn't really make sense if you're if you're saying you don't care about what the, the, the media or the press would say. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, just personally, I, I believe DeSantis handled COVID much, you know, much better than Donald Trump did. I would prefer, it, it, you know, going forward, if we would follow the model that he set up. And uh, I just, you know, I, I don't want to throw too much blame on Donald Trump because it was a little bit understandable what happened. But at the same time, you know, he probably let it go on for too long and, and got a little bit too concerned about what the media would say when they were going to criticize him for whatever he did anyway. Right. I mean, we can go back and there's just a million examples of, uh, of these celebrities and other figures saying, I'm never going to take a Trump vaccine. And then as soon as he's out of office and it becomes the Biden vaccine, they're, they're rushing to knock people over to go get it. I think that kind of shows you, you know, whatever he did, no matter what, it was going to be criticized. You just had to, to do the right thing and not care what people think, uh, thought about it. And, you know, he unfortunately didn't do that. Now, bringing it to current, we have RFK Jr., who's running uh, for the Democratic nomination, and he's totally against, as we know, he was skeptical of vaccines way before the COVID vaccine, but he's been a skeptic when it comes to the COVID vaccine and, and Dr. Fauci. And he, of course, wrote the book about Dr. Fauci. And I want to go to chapter eight in your, in your book, Illusion of Control, about schools, because there's another evildoer um, who has recently come back into uh, the the public sphere going against RFK Jr. And that's uh, Peter Hotez. And you write in chapter eight schools, along with Dr. Fauci, several other influential experts, in quotes, use their platforms and media attention to advocate for school closures and pointedly criticize anyone who contradicted claims. One such example was Barely University's Dr. Peter Hotez. In theory, expertise should involve a qualified individual who does their best to put aside personal opinions to reach the most accurate conclusion or recommendation based on the available information. That should be the goal anyway. Hotez possessed all the credentials that would lead someone to believe that he was capable of such expertise, but his actions and public statements quite profoundly 
contradicted that belief, which once again highlighted the difference between qualifications and useful recommendations. Unsurprisingly, he's maintained a cozy relationship with Fauci, and the two share a remarkable penchant for inaccuracies and failed prediction. In June of, of 2022, Hotez tweeted a response to journalist Molly Jong Fast, another overly concerned COVID-19 influencer, saying that he certainly did a lot more to keep schools open than the wingnuts and never took a dime for it, except, of course, his past public comments entirely contradict that messaging. And you a few examples of this. So Hotez is another example, isn't it, of someone who's trying to go through this revisionist history, saying he, he pushed to open schools when I was watching MSNBC when he was on all the time and on CNN, and he was constantly talking about the need to close to close schools. And of course, we know Hotez's uh, background is a vaccine pusher. He's a big pharma vaccine pusher. And so he had pushed that vaccine on, of course, children, specifically, specifically those people who didn't need the vaccine. So would you put Hotez up there as one of the, the top evildoers in the COVID era? Oh, yeah, for sure. And especially because of the platform he was given, um, you know, despite being wrong, provably wrong about so many things. Um, you know, I think he is kind of, I mean, maybe even just as much so as Dr. Fauci is the poster child for what went wrong with experts during the pandemic, where he just had this unjustified certainty about anything that he said, where, you know, because he said it, it was right. And then, you know, he would be pointing out, people would point out that he was wrong. And it would just get completely ignored or, you know, swept under the rug and he'd be back on MSC the next day, MSNBC the next day. Uh, you know, it's it's an unfortunate, uh, again, this is part of the problem with expertise we've been talking about the, uh, this whole conversation is just that people that have credentials are given undue respect and influence sometimes when, when they're they're not always to be trusted. Uh, you know, we're, literally today we just had the release of these, these emails about the lab leak theory and things like that that uh, pointed out how the virologists early on kind of worked together to silence and label something that they themselves privately thought could have been realistically possible. That's not intellectual honesty. And that's Peter Hotez in a nutshell is, uh, is very similar where he just kind of took whatever his political ide ideology demanded at the time and just, you know, kept, kept saying it, repeating it. And unfortunately, uh, because he was, you know, shared the opinions of the you know, establishment media or whatever legacy media you want to call it, uh, he kept getting more and more opportunities to to create, you know, or, uh, more influence for himself and and make these recommendations and give guidance that had no basis in, in evidence or fact. It was politically minded, um, and again, just like everybody else, has never apologized for any of it. It obviously was politically minded. There's no doubt about it. Egos involved. Of course, Fauci's famous statement of I am the science. You can't get more egotistical, insanely egotistical than saying something like that. Um, but I was just want to follow the money here. Right. And I believe Hotez is worth several million dollars, maybe 10, 20 million dollars, something like that. I read somewhere. Um this idea of obviously pushing the vaccine, and, and this is what we saw with the Twitter files, right? Going back to the earliest vaccine skeptics being silenced, um, early treatments that, you know, whatever it might be, you know, ivermectin, uh, hydroxychloroquine, the, the, uh, the, the Fauci mafia campaign to label anyone uh, who pushed those things as being a, a crazy conspiracy theorist. You know, remember they called it a horse dewormer when Joe Rogan took it, right? 
They said he was taking a, a horse dormer, which we know is wrong. It's, it's intellectually, it's wrong. Scientifically, it's medically, it's wrong. Um, to discredit anyone who would prevent the sale of the vaccine, the vaccine being sold at the highest rate possible. To me, that's all about, obviously, the money game, right? And the fact that they wanted their friends at Big Pharma uh, to make money, and they know they made money off the deal also. And, and Fauci controlling the purse rings, right, when it comes to grants, where people were afraid to talk out against Tony Fauci because they were afraid that he would withhold their grant money. So a lot of it has to come down with politics, but a lot of it also has to come down to with the bottom line dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. I think there are so many motivations and incentives. And, and I think that's another thing that was kind of uh, swept under the rug with the media, unfortunately, where they would, they would put people on and, you know, Scott Gottlieb is another example where he was the former head of the FDA, but right. he was also a board member for Pfizer. Well, right. when you're putting him on the air, it's kind of this unbiased expert saying everybody, you know, children under five need to get vaccinated. Well, you know, what you're saying is you're kind of misleading your audience by not telling them that he's going to financially directly benefit from Pfizer selling more vaccines. And so, you know, his, un- his advice may not be entirely unbiased. Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that he's wrong sometimes or about other things or whatever, but it doesn't, you know, there, it's information that needs to be, needs to be given to the public about what their, their you know, uh, conflicts would be and things like that. And it never was. And it's, it's, it is, as we know, money is always an incentive. So it's frustrating that uh, that so many people were not given the opportunity to understand that. Well, and the idea of being canceled, obviously, the cancel culture, the of being labeled a conspiracy theorist, of the threat of uh, medical licenses being taken away. I went to see Riley Gaines speak last night in uh, in San Jose, and she said uh, something that struck a chord with me, which is that a lot of these people who are publicly saying, oh, no, we, we believe that trans people should be able to, you know, play in women's sports, come up to her personally when the cameras aren't on off the record and say, keep doing what you're doing. We're on your side. They just can't publicly say that. In fact, publicly, they need to say the opposite because they're afraid of the woke mob, you know, uh, hurting their careers or canceling them. And I think we saw the same thing, right, with, with COVID, which we had doctors who knew these things were wrong. There were problems with these theories, but we're afraid. And even many to this day, because of a guy like Fauci and the power he has. And like I said, with the grant money and controlling the purse strings at NIH of grant money of doctors being afraid to come out publicly to say these things are wrong, to refute them. There are a few courageous ones, right? Like we've mentioned them, McCarry and McCullough and, and, and Bhattacharya and Atlas, but so many doctors who were not famous big names who were afraid to come out publicly and say this is wrong. Do you think do you think that might change going forward or, or are people always going to be afraid, like we're seeing now with the trans movement, afraid to tell the truth because of the the the, the, the woke mob, even though that woke mob is such a small percentage of society? Um, yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I do think that it there as more people, the more people speak out against it, the the better chance we have of it of it being, uh, you know, less powerful. But um, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think there is still a lot of self censorship that happens. I think there's a lot of uh, people very afraid to say what they really think. Um, you know, uh, corporations and kind of enforce that. You see a lot. You see that a lot with. Uh, 
you know, just punishment that happens from people on Twitter. And, you know, we've seen it. Jennifer Say brought her up earlier and, you know, she spoke her mind about school closures and getting kids back in school, which is a totally normal mainstream position. And, uh, you know, believe us, basically punish her for it. Um, would that happen today? I don't know. And that's the problem, right? I don't, I don't know the answer. It's not clear. And it's, uh, it's inexcusable. Obviously it should never be the case. Uh, but I think it's, it's not, we're not quite done yet with getting through this ridiculous process of people realizing that you have to be allowed to have free and open discussion um, and freedom of speech without fear of punishment, you know, within reason, obviously. Um, and unfortunately we're not, we're not getting that. In your opinion, whether any countries that got it right, let's put this way, were there any countries that did it the way, let's say, Ron DeSantis did it in Florida? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious answer is Sweden, and I think, uh, you know, I've written about them a lot, and because they they just kind of followed the pre-pandemic planning, honestly. They, they didn't really do anything that special. They just followed what everybody else should have followed. Um, you know, it was very light-touch policies. They tried to keep society as open and normal and functioning as possible, and um, you know, which is exactly what the pre-pandemic planning always said to do. So well, I don't know why other countries panicked and, and threw it out, but that's what they, that's what they did. And, and as a result, I write about it in the book, you know, their, their numbers are significantly better than a lot of the rest of the world. They have one of the lowest excess mortality rates in Europe and, you know, their COVID numbers were not that high compared to other places and in many other uh, parts of the world. They, you know, be places like Peru that have the strictest lockdowns in the world and mass mandates and the highest death rate in the world. Sweden was, was not like that at all. So, uh, you know, in terms of keeping, keeping uh, society moving, keeping things uh, limiting ancillary harms as much as possible, while also having generally good other outcomes, uh, you have to point to them as the, as the biggest success story. In chapter 11, you do write a whole chapter about Sweden. And now, we're, I mean, there are many of us that were talking about Sweden for the last three years, right, since this began. And now we're seeing all these, obviously, revisionist history hit pieces. And we actually saw it throughout the, the, the pandemic. Many of us posted them on Twitter, these hit pieces by the left-wing media in this country trying to, sh- to, to, to show how Sweden got it wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, basically just the opposite of reality. So we're seeing that again now, as we know all the mistakes that were made in this country and, and many other uh, uh, countries, uh, including Canada, of course, and Australia and, and New Zealand, um, that instead of pointing to Sweden and saying, well, we have the evidence, the proof, as you write in, in chapter 11, that they did it right. We're seeing a lot of these hit pieces that say, oh, no, don't believe all that. Sweden did it wrong. I yeah. mean, how that's another thing that confuses me when all the evidence points to the fact that Sweden did it better. We're talking about real numbers, hard numbers, right? The, the man, the, 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 the mortality rate and the deaths and all of this stuff. And we can do it with Florida too, with age adjusted deaths compared to New York and New Jersey and California. There's still this, this, this effort, this, this effort by specifically the, the left wing media, um, to try to say, no, don't believe what you see. Don't believe the facts. Don't believe the evidence. Just believe what we say. All these places did it wrong. And uh, basically, New York, New Jersey, and California did it right. Does that, it must drive a guy like you crazy, right? Because you know all the evidence. 
You have researched the facts. You've written about them on Twitter for three years. You've written about them in two books now. Does that drive you crazy that they do this and, and still, to some extent, convince some people? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I try not to let it uh, you know, can kind of consume you, know, obviously, because you, you just can't. It's, you can't, get, can't be productive otherwise. But, yeah, it's of course, it's very frustrating and, uh, uh, to see that there are so many people that are willing to discard the evidence and, and discard the data that we all have access to and we've met all, many people have written about. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know how you can make these arguments at this point and still think that you have the, the truth on your side, but uh, apparently many people can. So it's uh, frustrating and the height of absurdity, really. But uh, all you can do is keep, keep plugging on and, and, and moving forward and doing your best and giving the, the information that you have out to people and hopefully convince some and some in the process that weren't sure what the truth was. So the, the final chapter in your book is chapter 12. It's new boosters will save the day. Now we were told back in late 2020, early 2021 that you needed two doses, right? Of the Pfizer, you needed two doses of the Moderna. You needed one dose of Johnson and Johnson. Hey, Ian, what have happened to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? The, yeah. the one, the one and That's done vaccine. Now. What, yeah. Whatever happened to that? This is, did it work? Did that vaccine work? Because I don't hear about it anymore. In fact, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, notoriously took the Johnson and Johnson and in early 2021 promoted how great it was to only have to get one jab. But that one jab caused blood clots, didn't it? Yeah, I, I think it was for some specific demographics. I can't honestly can't remember. There's been so many different uh, iterations of this thing over time. But it was it. Yeah, it worked so well that nobody you can't get it anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that the that was again, it, it's all been kind of like a, a, a slippery slope where public health kept losing the trust of of the public over time and increasingly so with uh, with their their mandates and policies and, and assessments and claims that all kind of failed to, to materialize. And so on the on the idea of let me get back to talk on the boosters, the idea of we well, need boosters now every six months. You also write in your book about uh, vaccines for the flu also and masking in flu season. Uh, I know it's a lot, but. Do you think that come this flu season and, and beyond that there's going to be a, um, a section of the country that will mask for the flu, not for COVID, for the flu? Hmm, it's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, I certainly hope not. I think I don't think that there will be huge numbers of people that, that go back to masking just for the flu uh, across the country. I think that there are, even in the really far left areas, uh, most people have... You know, they 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 realize that the flu is something they've dealt with every winter for their entire lives, and and they're not going to be, uh, you know, just totally changing their routine based off of that uh, those kind of assertions. But um, you know, I do worry that if we do see some kind of new variant of COVID come in or whatever right, that, that right. causes a bit a bit more of a surge or an increase in cases, that people will go back to masking. And you know, I have absolutely no confidence that Los Angeles County wouldn't go right back to a mask mandate um, if Barbara Ferrar decided that she wanted to. So. I do have concern that it could be more of a permanent thing in terms of, of policies that come come later. Uh, I hope that's not the case, but I do I do hope also that there's enough public pressure if somebody does go back to masking that they're kind of forced to accept that it's politically untenable now. Uh, I don't know if that's that's true, but 
I hope, you know, if LA County really tried that there would be enough pushback, uh, even among the to say, you know, we're done with this and we all, it's, it's time to move on permanently and we all know the risks and can't, can't live with restrictions the rest of our lives. And I think you're right. I think that in places like LA and New York and, uh, and San Francisco, I mean, I was on BART here in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and, and I'll tell you that half of the passengers on BART were, were wearing masks. And this is yeah. this is just this is the two weeks ago, Ian. So it's not a stretch to say that come flu season, these people will wear even on their own, that they won't even need a mandate that people in, in major cities will just wear them anyway, even though, as you and I know, before covid, there was no evidence and no one ever thought about wearing a mask during flu season. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and was, exactly. And there was there was no evidence, as you know, through your research, there's zero evidence. Right that masks will prevent you from getting the flu. Yep. None whatsoever. <laughs> it doesn't any, matter. Any more so than the, prevent you from getting COVID. Now, yeah. it, is it your hope in the future that let's say, let's, let's dream and say we have a, a president DeSantis or, or a president you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That the, uh, the idea of, of boosters every six months will end um, that it might it might take the yeah. president to take the lead on that kind of a thing. Yeah, I think it's certainly possible. Um, I think the my concern is that if you know a new administration comes in and appoints a new CDC director, recommendations and you know things from the CDC start to change for the better, um, you're just going to have a lot of people ignoring it because they're going to believe it's you know now it's politicized and it's the uh, the evil Republicans and the freedom loving you know unwashed masses that are. Uh, have taken over the CDC. So, it, you know, the recommendations and guidance they got in 2020 into 2022, that's the true story. And whatever the new CDC under a new administration says is, you know, anti-vax propaganda or whatever it would be. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, like I said, I, I, I'm not that optimistic that uh, it would really change uh, permanently if they do start to, to say, you know, new administration come in that has a different perspective on uh you know how many boosters and doses we need going forward two final questions this next one's going to be tough i know you have to rack your brain for this one we've talked a lot and both of your books talk about how much the experts got everything wrong especially illusion of control is there anything you can think of over the last three years that the quote-unquote experts got right Oh, that is tough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, let me think for a second. Um, hmm. Take your time. It's yeah, okay. I mean, I <laughs> I don't know that there is anything. I mean, they they were wrong about so much stuff. It's it's hard to comprehend. I mean, I I I guess I would say that there were a lot of people, um, and maybe you know myself included to some extent, that thought. Okay, if we get 35, 40% of people uh, infected with COVID, that would be enough to get to like the herd immunity threshold. And obviously that was not the case. It, it was, it was never going to be, that was never going to be enough. So I guess the people that kind of were on that side, maybe you can give them that, that credit. They were a little bit more, uh, we, we got that part of it wrong. But um, other than that, I think that's about it. <laughs> Everything else they got wrong. It's amazing how much they got wrong, isn't it? I mean, and just, yeah. not just, the amount of important things that they got wrong is, yeah. is just, can you, th can you think of any, sorry, another question. Can you think of any other time in history where experts got so much wrong about something so important? 
I mean, I'm sure there are a, a, other examples of something at least kind of similar at some point, but I mean, off the top of my head, no, it, it's hard to believe the consistency with which they got things wrong is, was really impressive and awe-inspiring, really, honestly. <laughs> you'd think even by accident they would be right, right more frequently, but, but nope, they were wrong about pretty much everything. And finally, are you hoping that you don't have to write a third book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely I am. Uh, first of all, you know, there are a lot of work, so it's uh, not exactly a, a fun process to, to do it. But the other problem is, yeah, if, if, I, if there's enough kind of story to tell about a third book, that requires a third book about new COVID restrictions and, you know, we're all in big trouble, but uh, yeah. So hopefully that's, that's not a, a necessity. Well, the hope is that people are just, I mean, think get over it, but get, obviously at some point don't want to hear about it anymore. Right. Isn't that a good thing? If people just yeah, want to move absolutely. on and not hear, but yeah. maybe a third book would be about, this might take a while. There might be a gap between illusion of control and your third book. Maybe the third book in my dream fantasy world will be about all of the punishment that was handed down. Right. Yeah. The accountability, that we the accountability. Got. Yes. Yep. The accountability exactly. that was handed down that, that, that could be the final, maybe the final chapter in a trilogy to close the whole thing out. But Ian, you know, it's important what you're doing because we do need a history of this. We need a history of everything they got wrong, right? We need a history of what they did to society, what they did to people, what they did to people like Daniel's dad and so many other stories like like that where they people couldn't go visit their loved ones in nursing homes. People were met were, were left to die alone. The last few years of their lives, they didn't get to see their grandkids. Hey, look, we know all the stories, right? We know what they did, but we need a history of this stuff. And we can't let the we can't let them write the history, right? We can't let them lie and try to have revisionist history. We need people like you writing books like Illusion of Control and Unmasked to have an actual history of what they did. So I thank yeah, you for exactly. that. Well, thank it's, you. It, Appreciate it. Very yeah. kind. And it's Illusion of Control, COVID-19, and the Collapse of Expertise. That's Ian's newest book. You can also still uh, get Unmasked on uh, Amazon. Ian, it's, it's good talking to you. Let's talk again soon. Yeah, good talking to you too. I really appreciate it. All right, Ian. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. All right. Okay, that was great. Troll COVID-19 and the Collapse of Expertise, written by Ian Miller. Go out and get it. Very, very important. All right. Um, yeah, thumbs up. That's right. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Absolutely. So we'll be back at our normal time tomorrow night, uh, 11 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, and the name of this uh, podcast is uh, Let's Be Heard. Airs weeknights, 11 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m. Eastern, normally. And so I'll see you right back here tomorrow night. But until then, this is Micah Chopley reminding you that your influence counts. Use it. <laughs>